His book review says it all. Quote, in a world of 280 character social media posts, we desperately need to cultivate again our holy imaginations through good reading, especially with our children. In the Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tradium, author Dustin Limegruber writes a new inspirational fictional work in the tradition of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Dustin joins me in this episode for a conversation on his new book and a discussion on the essential need for reading and writing new works to captivate and form us as adults and the next generation by offering an appealing, soul-forming alternative to the digital distractions in our midst. Join me for this conversation on Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. So good to have you with me on this journey. I mentioned before that we are bringing back the Climbers series, which is an opportunity to hear from you, the amazing listeners. So many of you have stories that are truly encouraging and inspiring, some of them dramatic, some of them rather ordinary, but all of them have this common theme of having discovered classical Christian education and the impact it's made on your family or on yourself as an as an administrator or a teacher in a classical Christian school. Maybe for some of you it's meant uh, moving to a different town or rethinking all of um, the priorities for education for your children. So I'd love to hear your story. And even if it's uh, maybe in your mind a rather simple story, it's still an amazing reminder of the work that God is doing in our midst through classical Christian education. Just drop me a quick email, info at basecamplive.com. The phone number, the 833-595-2929 also works if you send a text uh, or leave me a voicemail. As always, I want to thank the Focus Group, CLT, and Classical Academic Press for your support. Our guest today is Dustin Limegruber. He is also uh, not only an amazing author, he's a Basecamp Live listener. Dustin, thanks for listening. It's great to have you on the other side of the microphone. Dustin is a classical Christian teacher at the Three Oaks Christian School in Decatur, Indiana, where he covers, as he says, everything from being uh, logic to rhetoric and probably everything in between. He lives in the middle of the cornfields along with his uh, wife and five children. They're not actually in a cornfield, but they're in a wonderful, beautiful part of the world in Decatur, Indiana. He has written the Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tradium, which is currently the number one new release in the children's medieval fiction books. Uh, Dustin has done an amazing job of putting together what is uh, going to be a, a book that will hopefully stand the test of time and be in the vein of another great book. Certainly a good opportunity to inspire children to put down a digital device and pick up a good book. Uh, Dustin's also a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological uh, Seminary, one of my alma maters. He graduated with an MDiv and a THM in preaching, and he works as an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Join me now for this conversation with Dustin. Well, Dustin, welcome to Basecamp Live. Thank you. It is an honor to be on here. Well, it's great to have you on. It's such a, a special thing, a special privilege, really, to have a listener uh, being interviewed. So, Dustin, you've been you've been a Basecamp Live listener for a while. It sounds like. 
uh, several years, probably about three years, as long as I've been teaching in a classical school. And I've learned uh, so many different interesting things from all of the guests that you've had on there, and I've enjoyed it. I always listen when I am out gardening in the summertime. So I've been ripping out weeds while I've been listening to you for a long time and, <laughs> and everything else. I love it. That's one of my favorite questions is, what are you doing? So uh, I think on the chart of what people do, dishwashing and, and gardening uh, seems to be pretty high up there. So uh, as long as you don't get poison ivy while you're listening to base camp, we're all good. So, um, well, Dustin, share a little bit of your, your story with us. Uh, obviously, you just mentioned your, your teaching. You said everything logic and rhetoric uh, at the Three Oaks Christian School there in Decatur, Indiana. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your, your story. Well, we were looking for a better place to educate our eldest. We have five children, and the public school was just not working out for us. And we did a little bit of homeschooling, but then we found out about a local Christian school that was a classical school and really didn't know anything about the movement at all. So we went on a tour of the school and we started talking to the headmaster there. And as he was talking, everything just made sense for education. And he just happened to mention that they were looking for a logic teacher for the next year. And I immediately was covetous of the position. And he said there was somebody else that might do it. And I thought, oh, please let them pass on this. I want to go and teach this course. Wow. So that was the way that we got into the school. And we have uh, never looked back ever since we got into it. Just been looking for more and more ways to be involved. And I'll be there full time next year, which I'm really looking forward to. That is fantastic. Well, I've led lots of new or prospective parent interviews. I don't think I've ever had anybody... Uh, say that they were envious or hopeful to get the the logic position. So you were the right right man at the right time. What is your background that that had you already oriented in that direction? Um, well, the uh, I think the reason that I loved classical education so much from my background is I have always looked at education from an interdisciplinary perspective. And that's what I went to undergrad for. And not many people do that, but I went to Miami University where they had an interdisciplinary studies program at the time. And you look at all of these different areas of creation and how do all of these things work together? And so seeing all these different disciplines pointing upward to God and uh, learning for his glory in a way that makes you more of a complete person uh, really appealed to me as opposed to the model now of get good grades so you can go to a good school so you can get a good job so you can make a lot of money. That's right. And then you can have a lot of debt too somewhere in there. Yes. That's, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> the modern model. Well, yes. so not only is your interest led you into the classroom, but it's, it's led you to uh, become a, a writer, a prolific writer and your newest book, the Sanctus Chronicles, the plague of tradium. If I've said that right. Um, is the Sanctus Chronicles, the Plague of Tradium. Tradium. Okay. All right. We're going to get into the title behind all this, but I'm really excited to to get your take on this. Obviously, there's not a classical Christian school in the land. If you're around for any length of time, you hear accolades of the great books and the wonderful literature our students are reading. Um, and, and here you are basically stepping into this tradition, stepping into a, a long line of great writers and thinkers to inspire the next generation using uh, fictional writing, kind of in the vein of uh, C.S. Lewis. We'll talk a little bit about some of your influences. But really, before we get started, just why did you write this book? When I started, I didn't even know it was going to be a full-length book. Uh, my eldest and I were going to be out of the country for a week, and I like to read my children bedtime stories. And I thought that, you know, not liking to be away from my children, that it would be difficult for everybody. So I decided that I would just write a week's worth of bedtime stories, and wow. I would sneak my kids into the story. So that way, when we were out of the country, 
I could read that chapter with my eldest and then my wife read the chapter with everybody else. And so even though we might not be able to talk every day, we'd at least be on the same page as far as the story went. And your your children are, are were how old at that age or maybe how old now? Just trying to get a sense of where oh, I started writing it uh, two years ago, right? When everybody had a whole lot of free time on their hands and they were forced <laughs> indoors. Right. Yeah. Uh, now my children are uh, 11, 9, 7, 5, and 1. So okay. all of my children are odd. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this began just as a as a creative father saying, hey, I really want to make bedtime, maximize it. And again, we're going to talk later in the podcast just about ways to, to maximize reading in your home. But you really took this in, to heart and, and wrote. And obviously it, it, it worked well. Nobody fell asleep immediately when you began reading it. Sounds like they were really captivated by by your writing. So Dustin, you obviously uh, went beyond just coming up with some nighttime readings. You you wrote a, a book eventually out of this. Your children were clearly uh, not falling asleep right away. They were engaged. They were excited about it. So how did you get from an evening story time exercise to writing an entire book? Part of it is that they enjoyed listening to it so much and I enjoyed writing it and having that little bit of extra time every day. I could write just a chapter that would continue to further the story. And as we continued on, I started to say, well, what are the themes that I want to work in here? And I could look toward the end of the book to say, okay, this is the kind of book that I want to write. And so I'll write my children into this story. And it was fun because while we were gone on this trip, the kids figured out that they were characters in the book. (laughs) And the very first character has my son's middle name, but it's a pretty common name of just Paul. And so it could have been any Paul. But then when my next child's middle name came up, they finally figured out we're in the story. So I got to continue to write that and then write them into situations where they would say, well, what does my character get to do here? And what should I be doing in life that these characters are doing? What kind of struggles do I face that they face? And how do we combine all those things together? That is fascinating, Dustin. I wonder, you know, as a writer, this is a whole, we won't get into all of this, uh, these side questions, but it is interesting because I wonder... I mean, you obviously want your uh, your children to be um, models of the of their character in the book. So you you know you don't want anyone to be too uh, deviant, I suppose, and you want everyone to sort of have a, a ambitious um, you know high lofty characteristics about them. So, um, mm-hmm. well, tell me a little bit, just in short, uh, just kind of what's the general plot line? How does the, how does the story unfold? Well, the the general plot line is that there are four children and they find themselves in a magical boarding school because their parents have mysteriously disappeared. And so they've fallen into this entire world that they have to cope with on their own based off of their upbringing. And the people that are supposed to be helping them out, the teachers are the ones that are actually trying to stop them from doing anything that is moral or praiseworthy or really practicing the things that they're learning about. And so they're drawing on their upbringing to see what they do in these big emergency situations. So, so it really, a, it really is in the vein of, of a Lewis. Um, do you have a wardrobe in there? Maybe is there a, a, a similar? Oh, I, I'd love to sneak a wardrobe in at some point, but that was the <laughs> primary influence. Uh, I've listened to uh, probably not everything that Lewis has done, but definitely the majority and especially his fantasy and his sci-fi. Yeah. And I love his idea that you just take God and you put him in an alternate universe and you see how he would behave there and how the rest of the universe would behave around him. And so that's what I do in this book. There's a character that just peeks in and this is the first book in a series and I'll write the rest of it later, but it's almost like 
uh, if you look in Esther and you see that, you know, God is there, even if he's not named, he's just kind of peeking in at the sides and he's directing things and you're getting to know him in shadows. Well, that's the way it is in this book. There is a mighty Ram who is directing history and the children find themselves as part of a much larger story. And they're given gifts to work in that story. And they have to struggle with how they practice their virtues, how they avoid all the vices that pop up in these difficult situations. And so it's the primary influence is Lewis. So you could right. see it as you know, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe for a new generation. And so I want to just kind of park on that idea for a second, because it's obvious, I think, for a lot, to a lot of us as adults who did not grow up in classical Christian environments, we, we appreciate great books and great literature probably more than arm's length. I mean, and I, I, we talk about this a good bit on the podcast where, you know, unfortunately, most of us had watered-down textbooks, and, and really the, it was a stripped-out uh, uh, story that really had, didn't have a lot of life and vibrancy to it, and it certainly wasn't something that would draw us in and compel us. And, and so talk a little bit about I mean, as a father, you think about we're, we're in the battle for the hearts and minds of our children. So how do you see allegory and fiction? Why is that such an important genre for really captivating children, even if their names are not in it? I mean, how does that, how does that, how does that, why does that work so well from your perspective? Well, if you look in the scripture, Jesus uses allegory and he uses story every time he tells a parable and those parables stick with us. If you're going to say, oh, just recite something that you have read in the Bible before, you're probably not going to get into law portions or you know, maybe something of Paul's that's got interesting sentence structure. You'll probably say, oh yeah, there's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you can whip that off and you can start to identify with who the characters are. It's just very easy to memorize that sort of thing and get it into your mind. Those are the sorts of things that children will want to hear again and again and again even to the point where it aggravates you as a parent when they want that book to be read for the hundredth time. <laughs> right. And those are the values that get into their minds. And so as they read about these stories, particularly the mini stories in the book, they'll start to see what the values are. And then they play that on their own. When my children play, they're saying, Oh, let's play the story of this princess. And who is the princess? You know, what does she embody? What kind of values uh, get across in the book as we're reading about the princess and the dragon. Yeah. And so that power of allegory is memorable. It gets into their imaginations of who it is they want to be and how they play. And then it gets into real life to say, oh, okay, well, if the princess did this in the story, what do you do in this real world situation? Right. Which, you know, again, you just beautifully described the entire reason why we put the great books before our children. And this again is this idea really of kind of living vicariously through these characters. And it's, it's um, again, even better when your, your own name is found in the book. Um, well, you also mentioned the idea of, you know, this is obviously a, a modern fictional book. It's being written right now. And we think in terms of uh, the changing generations going on around us. I mean, and, and on the one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. On the, and the other hand, boy, it's a very different world out there. And we'll talk about kind of technology competition here in just a bit. But how do you see what you've written when you're when you were writing it? Not only you're thinking about your own children, but you're thinking about just the cultural moment that we're in. So, did you do? do I, mean, I mean, I guess in other words, what's different in the way you wrote it? Maybe over way Lewis would have written it back in you know middle part of the 20th century. I mean, were you taking modern uh, challenges and pressures into account as you were writing the story? I think the only major difference that you see is the uh, the impetus of the plague and the plague of tradium. I did write it in an older style. 
mm-hmm. that was largely influenced by Lewis and all of those. And it's it's archaic on purpose, almost the same way that the King James was written with older language right. to give it a feel of antiquity. Okay. And so the kids are reading uh, language that's actually pretty similar to some of our more modern classics, if you would uh, allow that kind of nomenclature. Uh, but I was thinking as I was going along, what's going to be the thing that pushes the children to have some big moment? And with everything going on with Corona and children having to deal with living in a world where they are constantly looking at, you know, how are things changing? How do we deal with this? I brought a plague into the story that pushed the children to have to make moral choices as the plague is entered into their school. So I'd say that's probably the main difference of the plague coming in. But other than that, I tried to write it in a style that was older because there are so many good things from that era. It pushes children to learn new vocabulary, uh, a little bit deeper thought as the uh, as the language uh, demands more of the listener in a way that Captain Underpants does not. <laughs> yeah, as you learn to think in more complex ways. Right. As you learn to read in more complex ways, you learn to think in more complex ways. Right. That's well said. Well, and I think that's, you know, it's easy to uh, make uh, Captain Underpants, you know, kind of the easy to easy to punch on fall guy here. But I do think, you know, especially as classical Christian folks, it's it's easy to just draw a line somewhere on a on a chronological timetable and say if it was written before then, it's going to have to be good. And if it's written after then, it's probably going to be watered down and, and trite and and silly because that's sort of the the world we live in but you've you're obviously bringing forward some of the best tradition in the writing style and in the word usage and so there's a sophistication to what you're doing that is in the in the tradition of the great books in that sense Mm -hmm. so dustin as you were sitting down to write there were obviously influences we've mentioned lewis you mentioned esther and obviously uh, in the book of and the bible and, and scripture in general who are other influences for you uh, George MacDonald, I got to read some of and saw him as the great grandfather of Christian speculative literature. So he was an influence that picked up his influences from the, the Middle Ages. And so it's someone writing from an influence who's writing from an influence, which is one of the wonderful things about literature. The other is uh, Tolkien because he uses a lot of poetry in his world building. And I continue to use poetry and actually have a 40 stanza. Uh, that we might talk about a little bit later. I think we've got a clip of it. And that is something that points us back to the history of this world in the same way that Tolkien used it to point back to a bigger world with a bigger story yeah. that had a high poetic style. When we think about Lewis and Tolkien, obviously they are um, as loved by adults as they are by children. And, and I know you wrote this initially for your children. Do you have sort of a optimal demographic you're going after? Or is this you know, appealing to everyone in your mind? One of the reasons that I decided to publish it independently is because it doesn't fit the neat categories that all of the publishers are looking for. Mm. So I tried to coin a term of uh, read aloud middle grade Mm. because it's the kind of book that you can enjoy before you can really read the language well. And it's also the kind of book that you can enjoy up into adulthood. Mm. Uh, the, The modern authors that I would compare it with is that I've just absolutely loved uh, S.D. Smith writes the Green Ember series, and he's got that same kind of or- orphan trope where the values of the parents are shaping their children. And I, I seem to remember from an interview with him, he said that, you know, I just I don't want a world in which the parents don't care about their children at all. And it's just, you know, the kids against the world and their own invented morals. 
that they really have gotten something from the past and their parents do care about them. And that shines through. You know, that's a book that I would read just on my own, or I would read it to my children. And the one that I just absolutely love, this is my favorite series. My favorite modern series is the wing feather saga by Andrew Peterson. Mm -hmm. He does that exact same thing where you can read that as an adult without any children around and get an enormous amount out of it. Mm -hmm. Or you could read it to your seven-year-old and they could pick up those same themes. And so it's, it's a great family book. It's a great book for adults. I think before kindergarten, it's a little too deep, but other than that, I would say everybody should read it. <laughs> well, and, and like Lewis, again, there, you can read it through your child eyes and get a certain value from it. And then as an adult, you pick up on a lot of the deeper nuanced meanings that he has within it. So, well, we're mm -hmm. going to take a break in a second, but first I've just got to ask, I mean, and you're obviously the great competition today, especially with our, our children. Um, and we'll talk more about technology, but in particular with movies. And I think that is uh, obviously it's a lot easier just to put your brain in a passive mode and, and let all the images and the storyline uh, dance before you. So how do you see, obviously, again, we talked about it a little bit initially, but just the power of fiction, if we're ever going to win the stories, if we're going to be, if we're going to ever be in a position where we can tell the stories better, uh, we've got to write better stories. And so how do you see, you know, what you've written is, is sort of in competition with a movie? Before I answer your question, I feel like a politician on this one. <laughs> I want to answer the question that I want to answer. Yeah. It's a lot of the, when I was looking around at getting the book published traditionally, the kinds of storylines that people want to market to eight-year-olds right now are poor stories. And there's a lot of demand for morally gray villains mm. where you want to half sympathize with evil and half sympathize with the main character and it all just ends up being a story of well who do we really follow you follow whoever you feel like everybody's kind of a mixed bag and we live with that as opposed to here is a hero that does have a struggle with sin but ultimately something bigger than them helps them through it and helps them to do something noble mm. so just the content of the story is first and foremost what's so important and as far as um, winning out over a movie, I think that's mostly a parental choice. You know, we can just constantly put our kids in front of a screen and let it do the thinking for them, or we can train our kids mm. to work with their imagination and sanctify it. Yeah. Uh, not that I think that screens are evil. Uh, you know, we don't have our kids on screens for the first several years of their life, but as they learn how to read books and mm. as they are uh, creating that world and making their imagination more rich, I even think it makes the movies they watch better. They're able to be critical of them and say, well, that's not how I would have pictured it. You know, mm. I, when I read the book, it looked like this. And this was an interesting choice that they made. Or oh, maybe that wasn't the best choice that they made. But they're actively engaging in it in a creative way rather right. than just being a consumer. Yeah, no, that's and that's a great answer. And that, I think you answered it. You weren't a politician. That was really great. Um, <laughs> I do think I think you, you made an excellent point you make that that, again, the, the normative uh, narrative, if I can say it that way, of our modern culture is we're, there is no black and white. It's all gray. And, you know, the Joker's as good as Batman and he's just as, you know, noble in various ways. And I think that, again, this urgent need to raise up young people who can think and discern and can understand godly character um, is is certainly there. And as is, is we've certainly the, the power of the imagination when it's ignited is far superior to just the static movie, perhaps that, um, you know, is, is somebody else's rendition of, of what that, that scene was going to look like and so on. We want to take a break, but I'm also, I want to come back and kind of continue in this line of 
questioning, really in particular thinking about the way that you intentionally embedded not only moralisms, but life lessons and even scripture into the character and the storyline. And we're going to hear a sample from your book uh, read by one of your students that I think brings that to life. But um, I, let, let's let's come back to that question right after the break and, and be con- in, way, in a way that we can really consider uh, the power of this writing as a way of igniting scripture. So be right back here for Destiny. Hey there, I'm Jeremy Tate, founder of the Classic Learning Test, or CLT. Here at CLT, we are big fans of the Basecamp Live podcast, and we're excited to be joining Basecamp in the renewal for classical education. In addition to our beautiful suite of assessments for grades 7 through 12 and soon to be 3 through 6 as well, we have exciting new things going on at CLT. Please check out our new website where you can find out about the Anchored Podcast, the CLT Journal, and upcoming test dates. Head over to www.cltexam.com slash Basecamp. Again, that's www.cltexam.com slash Basecamp. Whether you're a homeschool parent, a teacher, or a school administrator, we would love to support you in your mission fulfilling a classical vision for education. Well, we're back here with Dustin, who's uh, book, The Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tritium, is very well, already being very well received. In fact, one of the endorsements on the back of your um, book cover from a, a pastor who's also a, f- a father, he says, quote, as a dad, The Sanctus Chronicles presents me with a lens through which to teach about life's hard, hard stuff, pointing me to courage and hope that's needed by all of us in the face of many trials. And he says, as a pastor, this book is a gem. It contains a thoroughly Christian outlook intermingled with art. It is a powerful combination for helping people to see gospel truth. Wow. That's an amazing endorsement, uh, Dustin. Yeah, I absolutely loved reading that. That was a, a real bright point. Yeah, I, I bet. That, that is a, captures well this, what you were intending to do. So the question is, as we stated before the break, is, is we think about how do you use this genre to teach life lessons and in particular scripture, what does that look like as, and again, it happens throughout the book, but what are maybe an example you could share with us? Uh, well, the, one of the things that I love the most about the book is that I have a poem in there called uh, the King of the mountain. And that's a part of the book in this. That is the book within the book. Uh, the main character finds a book called the wizard who was which is just an allegory for the Bible. And as he starts to go through this book, he is starting to figure out who this mysterious ram is. And in the tradition of Lewis, who has a lion come in and stand in for God, I have a ram that does that same thing. And so he picks this book up, he's reading through, and he finds this mini epic poem that details where this ram has come from, what his character qualities are, and what it is that all of these other animals who want to follow after him find so beautiful about him. And so I can use that kind of thing to talk about, you know, the early chapters of Genesis, what all these wonderful and moral qualities of God are and how it orders our affections and seeing his goodness and wanting to follow after him. Later on, it talks about the fall and those other kinds of things and how you deal with that. But this first little excerpt here is just kind of the prehistory and gives you a setup for the goodness of this Ram. Okay. Well, we're going to play that. By the way, this is, correct me, this is one of your students that are, it's reading this. Is that correct? Yes. I had a history and religion class this year, and okay. we went through the early biblical books, and then we went next door to the cultures that would have been there. And so one of the books that we did was the Aeneid, 
And as we were going through that epic poem that shaped Roman identity, we also studied this poem, which is shaping Christian identity, going back to those great Christian books, both biblical books and other books that are in the same tradition pointing to it to say, what are the authors doing? How are they using poetry to try to shape the minds of the people who are reading it? Fantastic. Okay, well, let's play the excerpt. This is the poem, The King of the Mountain. Before the days when Pen met Quill and Mist was on the mountain still, there ruled a king, both wise and just, who held the rod which ground to dust. Upon the mountaintop he reigned, and graciously he always deigned to hear the cause of lion or shrew, and justly showed his wisdom true. His court was fair, his court was fine, its furnishings were by design, both beautiful and fierce to see, the ram upon a judgment seat. When creatures saw his wisdom there, they climbed the mount without despair, though his frame quite did impose, his mouth all knowledge did disclose. Some bees came seeking neither court, nor wise proverbs of any sort. They simply came to sit and see the greatness around his majesty. So Dustin, the king of the mountain uh, poem, I'm, I want to hear, let's imagine for a moment we're in the classroom with you, the students have just read it. Now, what discussion do you typically hear? What are some of the teaching moments and points that you bring out? One of the things that I do is just getting to, into the mechanics of poetry and saying, how many beats are there in each of these lines? And so we're going through, okay, well, there's eight in this one and eight in this one and eight in this one and eight in this one. So you can see there's something normal here. And then we start to talk about the rhyme scheme at the end and why those words were chosen. But as we're going through those mechanics, it starts to get to a deeper point of what do you think the intent of the author was? And most of the books that we read, the author is dead. Hmm. And you can't really go back and ask somebody who has died several thousand years ago, well, what were you thinking when you wrote this? But you guys get that opportunity. So what do you think my influences were? And so we can start to talk about scripture and the other books that we've written, because this is written in the tradition of all these great books that they're already reading at school. So an example of that is we talk about the furnishings of this ram. And I say, what do you imagine this would look like? You know, if you were directing a movie, how would you lay out this ram's throne room? And so they're talking about what that would look like. And I say, what other great book pays a lot of attention to the furniture setup of the king's throne room mm -hmm. so that we can go back into the Bible and talk about how God sets up the tabernacle and the temple to convey something about his holiness. And so this is in that tradition of saying that this ram has particular character qualities because of the way that he sets up his furniture. So we can be talking about scripture and the way that architecture looks and then get back into any number of things, even if they've studied medieval architecture and the way that they built cathedrals. So the conversation can be wide reaching as they get into this idea of what was the author trying to convey? Where does he get these ideas from? And where is he trying to move us as people wow. and who it is that we love, what it is that we want to be? What a, what a, again, a fascinating opportunity that I don't think we typically think of, which is we read the great books and it's kind of a one-sided conversation because the writer isn't around either certainly to have the conversation or even still present with us here on earth. So I'm curious, as you have had these conversations with students in real time, are you finding yourself thinking, well, that's another really interesting angle that I didn't really explore or maybe even an interest in coming back and, and uh, you know, further nuancing maybe a scene or a poem just because of the feedback you're getting. Does that ever happen? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we were doing, it's the first thing that I mentioned was the meter of the poem. As you go through, every single line has eight beats to it. And we were talking about that. 
And then as the fall in the poem comes up, because this poem sets up this wonderful world of early Genesis when everything was great. But later you see the villain come in who is like the serpent and the meter changes in it. And for the first time, there aren't eight beats. And I asked this one student kept going back to her and saying, and how many beats are there? And she counted it out and she paused and she counted out again and went, there's nine beats. (laughs) And the classroom next to us even heard what was going on. So afterwards they were saying, what was going on that you guys were so excited? I love so it. seeing that, you know, a student could discover that. And I didn't even realize I had done it at the time. I had to play it off like I meant to do that the whole time. But <laughs> seeing the imperfection coming into That's something right. and that it coincides with the fall made me want to continue to do things like that. That is great. What a great story. And what, again, an evidence of this is what, you know, dynamic living education is like. And, and so often our experiences, many adults, it was just tediously as I think of, you know, Charlotte Mason's comment that so much of so many books in the modern world are just twaddle kind of sawdust. You just kind of chew through them and you don't, you certainly aren't bursting out in excitement and discovery and uh, creating disruption down the hallway. (laughs) So, well, uh, Dustin, we're going to take a quick break. I want to come back and just get some really practical advice from you both with your, with your educator hat on and with your parent hat on about habits that you've developed in your own home around uh, books and reading, as well as just best practices in the classroom. We'll be right back for our next segment with Dustin. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. So Keith, something happens to our kids when they hit that middle school age and they go from being really talky to not talking at all. And one of the frustrations I know is I remember picking up my kids from school and it's like, great, I need to be a good positive parent. So I'm going to ask them about their day. And I learned, I'm not supposed to ask, did you have fun? But I want to know. And I like, how was, the, how was this class? How did that go? And I get fine. Okay. Is there some better way to engage a child, especially in those middle school years? Yeah. Don't ask them a question. What? I mean, I, I parents well, grill no their talking. children. I know they grill their children when they get in the car and think about that. You've been at school all day long, and now you have to answer report. more questions. Right? <laughs> no, I tell parents it, the the comment you make to your child when they get in the car is affirming to them. Glad to see you. I'm glad. You know, I'm glad to see you now. Just something very simple, and then shut up. Let them exist in space. Let them. Uh, you know, decompress from their day. If there's something pushing on them, it'll eventually come out because it's not pressured. Mm. But that way we're not constantly nagging them. You know, tell me about your day. Tell me about this class. Tell me about that. That's a pressure that's not healthy for a child. And it shuts down communication. If we just affirm them, I mean, think about it. They're, They're in middle school. I'm not sure most middle schoolers come home feeling great every day. But now we've just affirmed them. We've built them up in some fashion, and then we've given them space. Then later, they come home, and we can engage in normal conversation. Because it seems like a lot of times we judge how well we're doing as a parent based on the amount of conversation coming out of their mouth. And it seems like that's always going to set us up for failure. Like oh, My yeah. child didn't come home and give me every gritty detail of what happened today, especially if that parent's been home all day and really wants conversation. So it's like a perfect train wreck every day. In, in my experience, the parents that grill their children, ask them questions every day after school, when they come home are the parents that end up never really knowing the significant things in the child's life. 
The parents, however, that give their children space and just affirm their kids, just encourage their kids and give them space to have experiences that they don't always have to report on, then when significant things occur, they talk to their parents about them. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. And I've discovered most of that usually happens after 10 p.m. at night when you're ready to go to bed. Right. Exactly. I, you know, I tell parents all the time, you're creating space for communication to happen organically mm. rather than trying to concoct it or force it. This is one thing we talk to teachers about. Okay. It, it, it's a notion of don't pick up the ball because there's a tendency in classrooms like silence is a bad thing. So you ask a question, nobody answers it. So then you answer it. It's like, it's okay. Silence is a great thing. To let silence happen. Absolutely. So silence in the car going home is also okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to be quiet right now. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. Welcome back to Basecamp Live, Dustin Limegruber. This is such a, an encouraging conversation to me because I think there's so many of us listening that I was a public school kid, I was a private school kid later on. You know, literature to me was just the big box you had to check to get through the test on Friday. And, you know, developing a longstanding love of reading was something I wish I had it happened to me earlier. There is a wonderful, um, in, another endorsement of your book, the, the Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tradium, is a tale full of unique supernatural gifts and the wisdom of great literature that children of all ages will delight in and the whole family can read together. So thinking maybe first about parents who are listening, what are some home habits, some best practices that you have incorporated into your home um, that you think would be helpful for us to consider? Just like anything else, modeling is a really big deal. Uh, I rediscovered my love for reading probably about six years ago when I was dropping one of my kids off at a library program and I had an hour to kill and I didn't want to go anywhere. So I thought, well, great, I'm trapped in this library for an hour. What am I going to do? And then I looked up and there's just shelves and shelves of books. And I remembered, wait a second. I remember there was this thing about Discworld. I want to go find some Terry Pratchett. And I just went and I picked up a book for fun and I just read it. And I got back into saying, okay, I'm not in grad school anymore. This isn't this thing that I have to do. Wow. This is something that I want to do. The, the and, fact that you didn't, that your phone didn't interrupt that thought, because there's probably just a defining like five second moment where you could have jumped on your phone and that entire idea would have gone away, but you had the discipline uh -huh. to say, all right, I'm going to go find this book. And, and obviously it, it jumpstarted something profound for you. I'm so glad I didn't pull out my phone in that moment. Absolutely. But since that time, I, I actually like to listen to books more than I like to read to them. And so my kids often see me with the headset on and they know that dad is listening to a book. And so if I'm out gardening or if I am doing any kind of task where I don't have somebody that I'm talking to, I'm listening to something and I'm talking to my wife about it. And occasionally I'll actually open a book and look at the print. And so they just know that that's something we do together as a family. And so that's changed the whole culture. And we've even got two preliterate children that will sit down and just look through books because they see everybody else doing it. And part of that is because I was in a library and didn't pull up my phone for five seconds. Well, that's, yeah, those are those moments that set tra new trajectories for us are, are significant. And I love the idea of just creating a home environment where books are present. You know, I think so many homes today are show homes and you walk in and the only books are, you know, it's like 
you know, going into pottery barn or somewhere and there's just like the four books up on the top left shelf and then the rest of the bookcases are empty. And so put books in your home, make that normative. I mean, that, that obviously is a habit that you've created, um, visually and in practice. What advice do you have, uh, Dustin, for families that, you know, especially with older kids. And I think about myself in this category with, uh, my youngest now graduating as a senior. Um, fortunately we, we did read, but I think if, if you haven't put those practices in place early on, what are, what's some advice you might have for folks with maybe older children in their homes? I'd say that it's like exercise where you can get to a certain point and wish you were in a type of shape that you're never going to be in tomorrow, but you just start out with something small that is not going to kill you and is not going to make you never want to go back to exercise again. And so, you know, yes, you should have been, you know, running five Ks at this point, but maybe just to walk down to the end of the street would be good. Uh, so there, so, yeah. that, that expression um, that the, the best time to plant a fruit tree was 10 years ago but the second best time is today, you know, regret won't get us anywhere. And if we didn't do it the way we should have 10 years ago, the best thing to do is just start in the way we can now. Yeah. That's great advice. And you know, maybe it's five minutes. You don't have to read, uh, an indefinite uh, length of time. So Dustin, what advice do you have for those who are educators? Uh, I think that uh, children can unfortunately sometimes look at school and see that this is just the work stuff. And when I go home, I want to do anything that's not school and reading can fall into that camp. And so just encouraging your kids to find books that they will take joy in that are quality books. I would say the very top of the list is probably the Sanctus Chronicles. But, you know, once you get that one, uh, absolutely uh, check out uh, the group, The Rabbit Room. Uh, they are people that write books that uh, I think the, the catch line for that is a new store with an old soul. Hmm. They are quality books. They're virtue based. They're exciting, adventurous, things that'll make you laugh that your kids will start to love. And that's a habit that'll develop and change who they are as people for their entire lives. Fantastic. Thanks so much. So what's next for you? I know this is the first part of a number. How many uh, do you anticipate in the series? That's one of those things where, you know, life is going to be uh, interesting. And if you want to make God laugh plan, but I was hoping for about seven books in the series to be similar to uh, the, the Lewis series. And I would love this to be something that people could continue to read as it develops. Yeah. You think they're going to make a movie someday? <laughs> uh, no, I am not so sure that the kind of values that we have make many movies. <laughs> <laughs> If it did, it would be a happy surprise. Well, you should throw a few more uh, gray characters in there that don't really know which ends up. Maybe that would appeal. I don't know. Uh, no. now, there are characters, and they're not the morally gray characters, but I like to say that some people are isn't evil like a Disney villain, and mm. you can just tell the second they step on screen that this is a bad guy. Right. But there's also some people that they wait the whole book, and it turns out that they betray you in the end. And so being able to see those characters and have conversations about who people are in real life, the devil doesn't always wear horns. Uh, those are great characters. And yeah. my favorite character in the book is one of those, which side is the young kind of characters? Yeah. Well, Jesus had Judas, so it's not a new idea, I guess. Well, Dustin, thanks so much for your insights, the great book that you've uh, made available. And for folks that are curious and want to know more, where do they get a copy of the book? How do they learn more about you and your writings? Uh, you can go to my website at dplimegruber.com. And if you can't remember that Limegruber is spelled L-E-I-M-G-R-U-B-E-R, -E -E you can just go over to Amazon and look up the Sanctus Chronicles, the Plague of Tradium, and you can find it over there. 
You can find it on audio because I do love audiobooks, so I wanted to make it available and I narrated that one, soft cover, hard cover, or ebooks if you're one of those people that likes to take out a tablet and read. Absolutely. Plenty of options for everyone. Well, Dustin, thanks so much. We'll have to have you back on after you get the next volume written. So appreciate all that you're doing and your contributions to classical Christian education. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. This has been a real pleasure. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Hannah Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader, to love God. And now as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world, a world that's getting crazier by the day. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to info at basecamplive.com. Let us know where you're from, where you're listening, what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.